Hey, Dunlop, I can see you. Stop holding court. I'm trying to get the final panel started. All right, the next guys that I'm about to introduce, whenever I work with them, I'm the one that's accused of having the accent. Um, but these are three really great guys that I've been, you know, had the pleasure of working with for quite a bit of time. Um, one of the guys I'm about to introduce played in the English Premier League. He was a former captain of Toronto FC. Um, had to, got a chance to work with him on his second ever show on TSN. And my oh my, is he a thousand times better now. I'm going to tease him about that. Um, the other two guys are absolute geniuses when it comes to the sport of soccer, whether it's analysis, dissecting tactics, definitely know they're up on the rumor mill. You might want to ask them about that. Uh, one of them claimed to fame was working with me, Gold TV, off the pitch. Yes, James Sharman, I am talking about you. Uh, and the other one I do have uh, the great privilege of working EPL and MLS with. So put your hands together for Stephen Caldwell, James Sharman, and Christian Jack. Now, these guys don't make sense even when they're sober, and they've been drinking the whole night now, so... I don't, well, yeah, that is nothing, that's a veteran move because I know exactly what was happening in the back during the first two panels and I'm outing you immediately right now. Um, so there, there's, I mean, there's so many different places we can go when it comes to soccer with you guys because you know just about everything. But wait a sec, so Europa League was today. Do we have any Man United fans in the house? <laughs> Whoops. Who uh, <laughs> yelled out jealous? That's funny. Because I was going to say, did you hear their chant? Obviously, you know, on a bit of a serious note, we all know what happened a couple nights ago at the Ariana Grande concert, which is really, really sad. But the Manchester United fans going into the stadium, I thought, were the best in what they were chanting. Do we know what they were chanting? Do you, remember, do you want to, anyone want to start that? If you, okay, if we have it. any sensitive people or people who are politically correct, maybe we shouldn't go there. Tell me now if we should not go there. Uh, don't go there, Andy. You don't want to go there? I'll chant it afterwards. Come to me afterwards, and we will chant what they were singing before heading into the stadium, because I thought it was absolutely marvelous. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about, uh, what do you want to say, EPL? Chelsea? Winners? Leicester? Eh. Spurs? Is that what you want to talk about? <laughs> Gordon Strachan, nice. <laughs> Great manager. Second coolest ginger ever. First right there. Well, why don't we first get into, let's get a little personal first. And I just want to, I, I alluded to the fact that you and I had a chance to work with you on your second ever broadcast on TV. What has it been like being a player, playing at the levels that you've played at, then coming on over here, North America, getting to know this market, and now being on the dark side of the media? What has that transition been like for you? Well, it's, it's been a little bit difficult, to be honest. It was, it was a pleasure to get the opportunity to do it while I played with, with TSN, but uh, when I stopped playing, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do, Andy. So to have options was, was nice. Um, and I will say, and I'm not just saying this because he's sitting next to me, I would say it if Luke was here as well, but it's a pleasure to work with the people I get to work with, yourself included, and, and to learn every day and to try and improve and get better. And I really enjoy it. I do. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. We get to talk about football, which is one of the best jobs in the world. Obviously, it's better to play the game but unfortunately for me I'm getting too old and too slow some could say I was probably too old and too slow when I was 26 <laughs> KJ but uh, now I get to talk about it and it's, it's fun it's, um, it's enjoyable Sharms is on the rival channel obviously but I feel a bit outnumbered here tonight <laughs> actually I won't lie to you it's like the trap's been set <laughs> going to bludgeon the sports yeah, but, to death but, tonight but you and I will always be teammates mate yeah, so that's yeah. why I'm here from the score, the score. Yeah, in, our, in our academy days the score, the few score boys here. Should we bring back the footy show at some point? Yeah, people do love that. Um, so, KJ, you've been covering so many leagues uh, for, for so long, but I know we've been talking a lot about MLS tonight and the growth of that league. But here's the thing. What about the growth of EPL viewership here in North America? It's on very early. I mean, obviously, you have the time change that you're dealing with. But what's, and, and then James, you can pony up that because I know you do a lot of EPL coverage as well. What are maybe things that can be done differently or is this still something that is bringing in a lot of viewers even though sometimes these games are 7 a.m. <laughs> on a weekend? It's very tough. Try living in BC where it's four. Right. Uh, but yeah, um, no, it's been 
amazing amount of growth. I mean, I've lived in this great country now for 16 years, and just to see how quickly and, you know, we keep saying we're riding this big wave, but waves eventually crash, and this has not crashed at all. You know, it's absolutely magnificent to see. You know, we've had loads of people chant lots of different football teams this morning, tonight, and, like, every morning on Saturdays you've got loads of people, whether it's Arsenal, Tottenham, you know, I'll go through the list, but people are into their teams the great thing from a broadcasting point of view is that there's no rival. Ultimately, in a Premier League Saturday or Sunday, it's, it's a dream for a TV network to be able to produce live uh, broadcast sports at Saturdays and Sunday mornings over here in North America when you've got no competition. And I'm sure it's a dream for some people to be able to watch it and then have the afternoon free to go and do what they want in the, after that. So, um, But no, it's, it's been incredible, the growth of the game in the Premier League. And, um, you know, hopefully we play a, a, mi a very minor, small part in that as well. As for what can they do more? Well, I think it's always the case in terms of just moving on with the times and getting, you know, it's a difficult one with the Premier League in terms of their social media interaction. I do think that themselves, that, you know, that their website, their apps are really, really poor compared to a lot of other leagues. You know, you look at what, you know, NBA does a magnificent job in terms of their, you know, their platforms of the young fans and but they get video on their Instagram accounts that obviously Premier League struggle to do that because of rights so there's always that kind of issue but I think I mean the fact that it's out there and my kids have, I mean I see kids wearing shirts at schools all the time now you know I never would have seen that long to, a, a long time ago and um, you know it's just a big big part of what's continuing to grow in Canada for me yeah it's a good point I mean no one markets um, sport better than the teams themselves you know, and that's why you've seen kids wearing shirts, uh, you know, for, for decades and decades. More and more now, though, like you mentioned there, and the different shirts. When I first started covering the game in this country in, like, 98, 99, you had a lot of United fans, you know, a lot of Liverpool fans. Um, and then suddenly in 2003, for some reason, lots of Chelsea fans popped up. Um, and then, then, for some reason, five years ago, Man City became really popular. It's, it's the strangest thing. Um, so... You, uh, <laughs> But, but obviously, you know, winners market themselves, right? And I think seeing so many games over here, if you compare it to what you can see in England, if you live in England, you're seeing far fewer games available to you. Um, so I think the TV have done it the right way. And like the guys mentioned here, as a broadcaster in Canada, that Saturday-Sunday morning slot, you know, it was just dead air for, for a long time. Um, and now the last probably 20 years is when I think Sportsnet first got the rights um, you know, it, it's changed. It's become a, a breakfast culture, football in this country. And I think when, when people come over here from England, um, they're, they're blown away by that. You know, people go into the bar to have breakfast and watch football as opposed to going to the bar and drink and watch football. Now, 11 a.m. hits and it changes. The breakfast culture changes. But, uh, you know, it, it's really made for TV, I think, to go over here. The other thing, too, Andy, sorry, is just from my point of view in terms of watching the games and evaluating the games, you know, the fact that we all, as fans of the sport, get to watch the games in their entirety. It's an incredible luxury. You know, uh, James mentioned it. You know, that in England, you know, they're obsessed with their, their teams, but they're still in a core group of match of the day fans, Stephen, really. Yeah. And it's, you know, they go to their match and they'll watch their team every week and then they'll go home and they'll wait for 10.35 on BBC One for Gary Lineker and his mates to come up and present highlight shows. And then what are you? Then you're a slave to what the editor basically wants you to see. So back to the evaluating the talent, watching your team religiously every week, knowing whether he's a good player, whether he's a bad player. Over here, you have an amazing amount of video for yourselves to take in or, or watch it. I mean, I'm sure you can see... I mean, we felt we were like Hull City fans this year because we had Hull every week for about 16 weeks in a row at one point. Uh, every no, no, Saturday. No, no, that, that was us. No, no, you, no, you had we Swansea. Oh, you had Swansea. Hull again? <laughs> we had Hull Jeez. every... So Give us Sunderland, please. So there was... There was only so many Marco Silva storylines that we could go on and on. I'll, and I'll on be honest. I'll on. be honest. These guys, you know, listen. We, we love all the games, all, all, all the, um, no, all we the teams. No, we don't. Okay. <laughs> Truth is, there's some really shit teams out there this year. Really bad teams, and there were some terrible games. Some terrible, awful games. games. And there's times, you know, we're sitting at halftime with Craig and Danny, and thinking, "What are we doing here? There's no one watching this. We could leave, have an empty desk there all halftime. No one would know. No one would know. And I'm sure our bosses wouldn't know. Pretty sure about that." Yeah. We didn't do that, obviously, but uh, it, it can be a miserable existence. But then you realise... No, we're not here complaining. Like... No, we're not complaining. There, there was one we did this season. I think it was in March. It was Arsenal-West Brom at Hawthorns, and uh, obviously West Brom won that match. And KJ and I came on after the game, and we're slotting Arsenal and Wenger. And, 
he's going to get sacked and this kind of stuff. And the one West Brom fan in the whole of Canada <laughs> tweeting the life out of me and KJ. Why not mention West Brom? They were amazing. They scored a goal for a corner. They can never win. He must have missed the pre-game show where we talked 20 minutes about Pulis. There, there's, there's a Burnley fan somewhere in Canada. And, and he always right tweets me. Yeah, well, a Swife admit that one there. Um, it's, it's at Claret, Claret and Blues or something. I he might his name, be here but tonight. Be he, is he here? I hope he is. He's a lovely guy, actually. But he's always hammering me for not talking about Burnley. There's one guy. One guy. I love Stephen DeFore. I do. But it doesn't make... The pre-game show, I'm sorry. This is work for me, by the way, every time that I have to work with these guys. I just sit there and let them go. We hate it so much. We hate soccer, obviously. <laughs> yeah, you hate soccer so much, so this is why you joke about it. Uh, World Cup is coming up, 2018. Um, what are the preparations like when you're getting ready for a big tournament like that, KJ? And then again, I mean, you're dealing with some time changes. Why are you laughing? <laughs> the Black Book. Y- oh, KJ Explain does. He, thank you. KJ has a Black Book. No, this is not like a black book where he keeps addresses of people about that he's not supposed to keep. If you take this black book from him, you will lose your life. But this is a really interesting... You have, I mean, he has everything. All the stats, the players, the plays, the stats, the numbers. You have everything down. This is a mind that works in mysterious ways. The World Cup. Yes. Um. <laughs> he's like Russell Crowe in front of a black book. Is it under lock and key? He, does, he doesn't have one black book. He has a black book for every single league. Champions League, Europa League, MLS, EPL. He's sweating we, under the lights. Right we, we, we had a game once. It was called Who's Faster, KJ or the Internet? <laughs> Who won and he the was game? Never beaten. Never beaten. Thanks. <laughs> Let me tell you the reason why this started. When I was with Charms years ago and we were doing the shows and we had Premier League, we had the 40 show, I realized very quickly that you've got to get something very, very fast. If You never know. So. Say if there's a big moment in the 45th minute. Now, we don't work with, like, we're not Sky Sports here. We don't work with, like, 25 stats, guys. You know what I mean? Like, they're not, like, all sitting around waiting, oh, find me this stat. So, you know, it was very quickly realizing that it wasn't just having the information in your mind. It was how can you access more information very quickly. So that's why the notebooks come from, the quotes, the, all the different things that I've got. The it makes me look bad because we'll show up at work. He'll have this book. It's so organized. And I come with like a ripped piece of paper. I'm like, here are the talking points for tonight. You know I could never do your job. You're a, you're a genius. <laughs> no. Nobody can talk 35 minutes over painted lines in Montreal better than Andy Petrillo. <laughs> Nobody can drop a line when we're in Montreal and the producer shouting in our ear, keep talking. Nobody can drop a line like Andy when she says, we are literally sitting here watching paint dry. <laughs> That's why she's an award-winning broadcaster. That was painful. Do you remember that? Oh, I'll never forget it. We are, we are never having a game there ever again oh, where yeah. they don't paint well, the lines properly. And then... Well, we won't be going there this year because Montreal are crap. No, they're crap. <laughs> and then they're using a leaf blower to dry turf. I was waiting for it to go up in flames. And I said, this is going to be a disaster for the Eastern Conference Final. Uh, our, our, sorry, our set, yeah. our set was right on the edge of the field. And there's, and there's so many little trap doors in the Olympic Stadium, like you don't even know if someone might pop up out of the ground at one point. Um, but like at one point, there's this big conspiracy going on whether Montreal did it on purpose, if you remember. The reason why I'll never believe they did it on purpose because literally right behind the camera, and the cameramen were probably two or three rows back from you so I could see them, right behind them were Montreal players had come around from another trapdoor and standing behind the cameramen watching what was going on. And I'll never, ever forget Didier Drogba's face. He was absolutely disgusted. (laughs) He's just covering his face with it. He could not believe what he's watching. He's like, this is Mickey Mouse. That's basic. So uh, from that, seeing Drogba's reaction that night, I'll never ever forget that. And oh. also talking for 35 minutes with you, where, by the way, a black book came in handy. It really did. See? <laughs> <laughs> the black book did come in handy. My ripped notes did not at that point. I just started BSing some stuff. Um, but so the preparation begins now for World Cup, I would assume. Well, we have the Confederations Cup first. Uh, we have that this summer, which is good because we get to watch some of the eight teams prepare for, for that as well. So we'll. You know, I always enjoy, you know, it's like preparing for a big quiz or a big exam, I suppose, preparing for a big tournament and get to see the players and everything like that. And 
Um, yeah, I mean, the World Cup we have next year as well, which we're really excited to have. The Favorites? Rice. Are there any favorites, or is it too soon to tell? Uh, I think Brazil are a really strong team right now. The way that they're playing, they're nowhere near the team that they were when they were a disaster on home soil three years ago. Uh, they'll be very difficult to beat. And, um, you know, if, if, if Didier Deschamps learns how to manage properly, then the French <laughs> team... Psyched. Yeah, the French team are very, very deep. And, you know, the, obviously the, when you've got the holders in Germany, the, the way that they can turn it on in the tournament. But it'll be fun. It'll be a great tournament. And we'll see the Germans as well with, with the Confederations Cup that we'll have. Yeah, it should be fun. It's going to be a... Obviously, it's not a tournament that anybody really wants to win, but it's nice to get a look at the teams. I think it's really important for the home nation, obviously, to put on a good show. So it'll be interesting to see how prepared Russia is for a World Cup or in lead into a World Cup. So that's always exciting to see the stadiums and, and the excitement within the, the country. And it's, it's the last good one, isn't it? Really. <laughs> because you go out, what, Qatar in 2022. Well, it's going to be a good that, one in 2026. Well, yeah, I suppose 10 games in Canada, but then 48 teams. You know, it's a monstrosity. But you could walk so to a game, Charles. And it'll be handy with 10 games, yeah. No, it'd be fun. 10 yeah. games in Canada is fantastic, but the whole concept of 48 teams to me is just absolute nonsense. There's going to be some truly deplorable teams in that tournament. In Scotland? Um, and, no, and Scotland. They're, they're, uh, not they're, make it. they're not even going to make, make it. They're not even going to make it. But, I mean, it's just, it's just a big FIFA cash grab. We know that. And England will still lose in penalties in the quarterfinals. Oh, no, doubt. no doubt. They won't even get to the quarterfinals, mate. Assuming this bid wins against Morocco. <laughs> Why bother Morocco? Why are you going to spend the money? Hey, My may, God. Well, with the 48 teams, maybe Canada can finally make it, and then we can cheer somebody on. They better, huh? They uh, better. Well, at you know that, I mean, if you don't, then uh, that's pretty even bad. Even with the automatic birth, they might not make it. <laughs> but here's the thing. With, um, with that amount of teams that will eventually be competing for the World Cup, do you feel like it... I mean, already, I guess your opinion's been stated. Do you feel like it dilutes the product? That was the big topic of conversation. I know when it was first announced and it was first bandered about, that was after the 2014 Olympics. Uh, sorry, uh, World Cup. Ooh, I cover too many tournaments. That was after the uh, 2014 FIFA World Cup. That's what was already being discussed. And right away, the conversation was, this is going to dilute the product. Other people said, no, this is actually great for international growth. What side are you on? Well, well to me, the World Cup shouldn't be about growing the game in, in small markets. It should be about celebrating the best of the best. I mean, quite frankly, 32 is too many. I'm old-fashioned, perhaps. But, you know, 24 was, was great. Um, it should be about a, a big party to celebrate the best teams in the world. And, and we're seeing international football nowadays. It's not what it used to be. It's so tactical now, and it's so defensive that I think it's lost a, a lot. The last Euro, I mean, obviously there's some highlights, but there are a lot of bad games in that tournament. Um, you know, Portugal, with respect, you know, they deserve to win that thing. But, my God, they weren't fun to watch, were they? They were. <laughs> if you're Portuguese, they were fun to watch. If you were anyone else... Shout out to Brendan Dunlop, who travelled all, <laughs> all the way to Paris for the final and actually saw his team win when he never imagined they would. <laughs> Portugal. Um, <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, one of his teams. Uh, <laughs> he decided to be a Portugal fan when they won. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think the, the points James makes, it's very... I mean, I think it's the majority's take that it's... It's obviously too many, but it's unfortunate that the governing bodies of the sport, you know, they get, you know, they want to get more money, and that's what ultimately it is. They want China and India in the World Cup, and ultimately that'll be their dream to do that. They might have to expand to get 64 to get them in, but <laughs> <laughs> don't rule that out at some point. I, I, I think I actually think that we'll see um, more major teams win them because if you think about it, you've only got to play two group games, and you've got to play five knockout matches. So, like, suddenly it's like the best teams always rise to the best when they play the knockout games. You, you could say with a knockout match, you're all, you've got more out prone for a, a shock, which I can definitely take into account. But to win five knockout games in a row, you've got to be a really, really good team. And, and uh, the great thing that, that I love about World Cups is I really enjoy it when, in anything, I really enjoy it when the team that deserves to win wins it. I feel like winning is very, very difficult in professional sports. That's why you see them, so, you know, so into it when they win. That's why we all love it. That's why we're all gra we gravitate towards it. And the great thing for me is that I can think about all the past World Cups and I can think, yeah, 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 they deserve to win each time. 
my fear is that we're going to get to a point where maybe we'll, because of the knockout games and a lot of that, we might not. But I do still stand by my original point that I think the stronger teams will rise because of the five knockout games. I think back to Sharm's point a little bit as well, KJ, is that with the knockout games, I think it might be a little bit more defensive again. That's the issue there. Yeah, exactly. You know, with the less group games, it goes straight into knockout. We'll see the kind of performances like Iceland, teams like that, who are well organised, difficult to beat, maybe sitting in, trying to play for that one goal or a penalty kicks, which... Is, is not what we want to see. We obviously want to see goals, not at the expense of good defending or you know, silly decisions, dives in the penalty box, but we, we want to see exciting games. We want to see attacking football. And in, prior to the knockout phase too, that, that 16 group three team knockout phase. Nonsense. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's been so many dead rubbers and so much conspiratorial thinking in that last match day. Um, you know, you hope that doesn't happen, but it's going to happen. It's bound to happen. So, you know, the whole concept, I think, is ill thought out. But we know why you mention it. It's all about money. FIFA want to make more money. They've got a lot of legal bills to pay. So, <laughs> they're, also, they're also dramatically fighting for relevancy. Like, everybody gravitates to major tournaments. Like, everybody will watch the Euros. They'll watch the World Cup. But ultimately, international football has been massively overtaken by a club game. And it's not close. The race is over. It's never coming back. You know, when, when I was younger, the, the biggest thing was the World Cup. And it still is the thing that attracts everybody. But the biggest thing meant the best. And the World Cup's no longer the best, where the best football is played. You'd also, you'd also be introduced to these wonderful, mysterious foreign players yeah, who exactly. you hadn't heard of before. And, and my, who's this Socrates? He's incredible, mm. you know? Yeah. And, and now we know who these players are, so the mystery's kind of gone a little bit. Yeah. So then let me ask you this, and I'm sure there's varying opinions, and I'll just start with you, Stephen, and then we'll move down. What do you think then is more important for a player to win? What would be considered more prestigious, Champions League or World Cup? World Cup, no question about mm -hmm. it, because you're playing for your country, and, and I was lucky enough to obviously represent my country. And one thing you realise is no matter who you play for, if you're lucky enough to play for Juventus, Man United, Barcelona, Real Madrid, it's one thing, I assume. I obviously, I've not played for any teams, but to play for your country... <laughs> I definitely have not played for any of the teams. <laughs> to play for your country, everybody's watching. Everybody, your aunt, your gran, your friends, your people you went to school with, everybody's watching, everybody's critical, everybody wants to, to be there and everybody gets behind their country when, when they go to a major tournament. I mean, I can barely remember that because it was 1998, but I was, everybody gets behind their country. And uh, So for a player, for me, if, if I could choose something, I would definitely choose World Cup. And I think that's a really good point. I mean, it's something that I can never relate to, but talking to players, it's, it's their onus to keep international football relevant. It's them. Because there's a lot of consumers, there's a lot of money within the European game saying, stop breaking for international football. I want to go and watch my team every week. Why have we got another international break? And I get that some of the timing of the international breaks are just moronic. Like, why have we got one in September, right when the Premier League season starts? You know, why are we going to stop again in October? Just condense it. Let's have a bigger schedule in the summer. Stop the season and, and, and end it earlier. But they do it because they're fighting for relevancy. But the players, when you talk to them, and it's not just him, when I talk to them, many of them absolutely love it. It's their way to get out of their club scene it's their way to get with their mates, to go represent their shirt. And it doesn't matter. It's not just an international tournament. It's a friendly game sometimes. I remember being in Harrison, New Jersey, and um, Columbia were there. And we were staying in Hoboken in the same hotel. And it was unbelievable, the amount of fans outside there. We were there for a Red Bulls game. And you've got Hamas in, the, in, in there, and we're walking around, and Freddie Guerin comes up, and I'm talking to Carlos Sanchez, who played for Villa. And these guys were just liberated. They, they were like, it was like they were on the holidays. You know, and that's their break from the intense Premier League season or the intense European season. And that's, I think, the relevancy of the international game still from the players because they're the ones who can tell you more than anything how important it is to represent their country. I think those players that, uh, that can't make the national teams love it because they get a little break. As simple as that. And they say, you know, we can have a bit of a downtime perhaps, yeah. I think it's subjective. It depends who you play for. Like, Scotsman, you, you know who you are. You have identity, right? Croatians know who they are. They love putting that shirt on. He's getting a dig in there, isn't he? It's been nice. I was paying you a compliment. Like, yeah, you were talking about country. players who didn't make the team. I thought you were going to get to <laughs> Steve. <laughs> 14, 15 caps, right? 12. 12 caps? That's, that's more than me. <laughs> and everyone here combined. It's a lot more than all of us. But, uh, I mean, I think different countries. England's a bit weird. And Jamie Carragher, um, he says that, you know, he, he played for England, but he never felt the same way about playing for England as he did for Liverpool. You know, he, he'd lose with England, 
And he'd be, yeah, yeah that kind of sucks, but he'd be okay. If he lost with his club team, he'd be just devastated for days afterwards. So I think it's subjective. And they, I mean, they played that way, though, didn't they? But it's a good point, Carragher. Well, here's well, Jim no, on the bench, they played too. Like, they played like they didn't really care. <laughs> it's a good yeah, point. That's the yeah, problem. Pretty it, much, yeah. It, it comes from Liverpool, Manchester United, having the conflict back in the day when there was six and six or yeah. whatever numbers there was, and they didn't feel together, you know, and that's, again... We don't want to talk about England for too long, but that's part of the reason why they're, they're never successful because they don't gel as a as a nation in, in Croatia or different Iceland, for example, who are not that talented but really gelled like a club team and, and had somewhat successful campaign. They also had a crap manager who didn't really know understand that he had Deli Ali and Harry Kane handed to him and thought, nah, let's not bother playing with them two. Let's create something else and play Wayne Rooney. Are you saying Kane shouldn't be taking corners? Might, might I will good, stand by that decision. Might be a good idea that Maurizio Pochettino gave you a platform that you could pick up and actually do well with and say, nah, I'm going to rip Let it Let me off. ask you this, though. Would Big Sam have been successful? No. I so much hate to Big Sam, mate. I don't get it. What? No hate. No, there's hate there. No, not really. Oh, there's hate there, KJ. He did great for you Palace. Stand him. He did great for Palace. Hey, I read an interview with Milivojevic him this week. Milivojevic is a good player. He's a good signing. I, th- I think he's a lovely, lovely human being, actually. Who? Sam Allardyce. A lovely human yeah, I, being. I do. <laughs> I, I think he's misunderstood. Okay. 100%. I, I, I've, I've spoken Are you aware of the big brown paper envelopes he receives? It's football, it's football management. <laughs> That's he should, not should football not, he should management. Not have been fired. It is football management. That's well dodgy. It's dirty. It is, it's dirty. The, it's, it's, it is dodgy. Precisely. Football management is dodgy. These guys can squabble. I just say World Cup 2006, Italy. That's all I go to. Oh. Speaking of defensive football, boring, negative Catanaccio. It was highly entertaining. And Gigi Buffon was one of the best keepers in the world. Hence Juventus fan. Um, But, you know, you you bring up a valid point because I've... And, you know, even when we had... Tim Bezbachenko on earlier, and you're talking about the growth of MLS. It's a business, and when teams become stronger, they don't want to lose their players anymore. And I know if you're a TFC fan, you probably get pretty angry every time. You know, it's a critical moment, and you lose Bradley, and you lose Altador because they have to go, and, you know, all of a sudden it's national team duty, and they're gone, and then Altador ends up coming back, inevitably has some sort of hamstring strain again, and you're like, wait a second, we're in the middle of a pretty important run here. Can so we, you can can see we how- stop with the Gold Cup every two years, maybe? You think there's too many tournaments now? Well, why, are we having a, why are they having a Gold Cup every two years? Aren't you hearing that? Yeah. It's fine. I'm allowed to say how I feel. <laughs> too, the, the, my biggest concern, and you bring a great point up. Look, you know, there's a lot of TFC fans here tonight, and, and, and there's a lot of MLS chat already gone on. But ultimately, you know, Josie Altador and Michael Bradley are enormous part of that club, and they need to be protected. And it's not just them. It's a big thing for me in the game that the players, some players are playing far too much football. Far too much. And, you know, you think about Alexis Sanchez at Arsenal, and he's just one example, but he's going to be playing in a major tournament again this year. And there's a very good chance he'll be playing in one again and again and again. And eight years in a row, over a span of time, he's played in a major tournament for his country in the summer while he's getting paid a load of money to play as a world-class player for Arsenal. And for me, you know, if I'm an Arsenal fan, I'm watching that guy play in the back-to-back Copa Americas thinking, this guy's going to break down. And luckily for them, he's the kind of player who looks like he's... And when you speak to people that know him, he looks like he wants to play and he plays hurt. There's a lot of players who don't do that. But Sanchez is that kind of example for me that I think is the perfect example that players are going to burn out. They're playing far too much football... And to ask them to continue to play that over and over again. These international tournaments, these Gold Cups, Michael Bradley and Josie Altador are going to go to represent the U.S. They're, going to, they're intense games. When they play Mexico, they're going to go out there at the very highest level. That's a massive, massive game for them. And, you know, I just think that sometimes there's too much, there's too much international football in the summer. Yeah, it's a conversation we have across many leagues. Soccer has it, hockey has it. Is there just too much that to the point where you're, you're thinking too much about the business and too much about the money that you inevitably end up burning out the players. We're going to open up the floor right now. You guys can, again, you, you know their wealth of knowledge. You can ask about whatever league, any questions. You want to hear stories. It doesn't even have to be soccer-related. Right in the back, we have somebody all the way back there with their hand up. <laughs> I already hear an accent. Don't worry, it's not striking. <laughs> Firstly, Stevie, it's not striking. Don't worry. Um, you got Blackpool, Leeds... Blackburn, load of teams, shit owners. CPL's coming up. 
how badly do you think these owners are going to be CFL orientated versus Canadian Premier League? And you guys are interested in Canadian soccer for a long time. You got a vested interest. So how do you think the owners are going to be? That being said. Well, there's no doubt that we need a national league, obviously, in Canada. It's one thing having three teams in MLS. It's another thing having a place for, for our young players to, to play uh, consistently. And unfortunately, at this point, there's not enough talented young Canadians to play within the MLS sides. So I think it's a great idea. I think it's a good start. I think there's a lot of questions to be answered on, on CPL, um, how successful it can be in the early days very questionable. I think it will be, be a little bit like MLS. It will take a, a, a while to get started properly. Uh, I don't like the idea of six teams. I would like it to be at least eight, hopefully ten teams. Very important for me that Ottawa and Edmonton come into CPL. Obviously, they're established sides. Uh, we're going to need them and, and, and what they bring in terms of history and, and, and things like that. I also think, and I know... Uh, TFC don't specifically want a team in Toronto or CPL are unsure about that, but I do think we need a team within the, the outskirts of Ontario, maybe maybe London, Kitchener-Waterloo, somewhere like that, but I do think that's going to be very important to CPL as well, to have a, a team within the vicinity of, of uh, the GTA. Uh, but I, I think it's a good start. I think it's, it's needed. I think it's going to get help by FIFA and, and Canadian Soccer Association to help you know support it in the early years and Hopefully, they'll have soccer-specific stadiums, the correct size, 10, 12,000 seaters, obviously, with, with some restaurants and some entertainment in, in the vicinity as well to make it almost like TFC was uh, 10, 11 years ago, and I wasn't here to see that, but the excitement and the kind of day out to go to the soccer, I think that that's the way to go forward and, and turn the quality will in, improve as the years go on. The owners, uh, well, obviously they're very wealthy. They're very wealthy and it's going to need some money. It's going to need some support behind them. So uh, I think it's the easiest way to start. We don't want people to come in and think they're going to make money in year one to five and then obviously jump out uh, too quickly. So if it's C CFL owners and they, they have the, kind of the wealth behind them and they're going to stick with it and, and support the league, much like MLS was supported by three or four guys or, or organizations back in... 1996, then, then that's the way forward. That's the guys that we're going to need in the early days. Yeah, but the CFL, I mean, for all its faults, it is relatively sustainable outside of Toronto, apparently. Um, but and I think that is the model to a certain degree, smaller markets as well, obviously. And I spoke to Paul Byrne about this a couple of weeks ago. He's running this thing, and he's obviously got experience um, with, with TFC, uh, went to the Senators for a year, and then most recently with Brighton and Hove Albion, a very small market team, admittedly in a, in a soccer culture. But he says he learned a lot from that. And they're very, very conservative, their plans here. You know, as Stevie mentioned, six, seven teams maybe in that first year. They may be up to 10 a couple of years later. He was saying eventually they eyeball perhaps as many as 18 teams. But that's not for a number of years. But I, I am a bit skeptical. I hope I'm proven wrong. Um, you know, there's people here, I see some faces who know more about this than we do. Um, I hope I'm proven wrong. But this is a loss maker to start with. And I'm, I'm sure these owners are well aware that if they're going to invest, they're going to lose money the first few years. There's, there's no doubt. But you're right, we do need it in this country from a footballing standpoint. See, for me, owners should just provide the money. Don't get involved in the product. Know your role. It really is just to provide the money, and you know in the beginning you're going to lose it, but that's it. Nobody wants to hear from you. GMs don't want to have to deal with you. Just provide the money. That's the, that's the role of the owner when it comes to sports. Um, but something you brought up, and correct me if I'm wrong, when it comes to development of, of Canadian players... And I know we were speaking to Jason DeVos about this at the MLS Cup final because obviously you have uh, the foreign spots on teams and Canadians count towards those foreign spots on MLS teams. But are they looking to eliminate that? Is that something that's going uh, to come? It's already been done. Has it been done already? So now they won't count because I know that was hindering a lot of Canadians from even playing on a lot of American teams because if they already brought in players outside of North America, then that spot's already been taken up so the Canadians couldn't play. So how much do you think that also helps with the development of that talent now knowing that you can play in any team in MLS and not... But it's from young players, academy players. So it's for the uh, academy yeah, players. Yeah. So what's the age? Like, what are the restrictions there? I think if you played in specific academies, if they're, if they're represented or being involved with specific academies that are, are uh, recognized by CSA mm -hmm. and MLS, then they're counted as homegrowns, which is, is important. It's obviously there's been 
movement between US players into Canada and they're still counted as homegrowns, but unfortunately for young Canadians, as they go to a US MLS team, they're an international spot and, and these spots are becoming more and more coveted. So now if you play with specific academies throughout Canada, uh, you, you're going to be counted as a homegrown, whether you play in a US MLS team or a Canadian MLS team. Mm -hmm. So that should help with growth. Uh, go over here. Hi, there's been a lot of focus on APL today. It's interesting that uh, one of the reasons why Canadians are so interested in the APL is that the very best players and coaches in the, in the APL are not, do not come from the UK. They're actually international, and there are a lot of international people who do not come from the UK that watch the APL because it is an exciting league. But that is not my question. Portugal has been called out, the Euro, the Euro champions have been called out a couple of times tonight, and so I must ask the question, if Real Madrid wins next Saturday, can you deny Cristiano Ronaldo the Ballon d'Or? This old chestnut, eh? Ronaldo, who's Ronaldo? Who's Ronaldo here? Who's Messi? Who's Ronaldo? There's one there. All right. You know, th th this, whole, this whole case, you know, who is, who is better, right? I mean, there's as not that easy. As long as he easy. brings his bronze bust I'll, with I'll, him I'll on stage. I'll answer your question in a second. I'll answer your question in a minute. Go ahead, James. Um, I just think it's a very subjective question. You like one or you like the other. They're both wonderful. They're both arguably the best player of all time. Arguably. I mean, who one can... Who, sorry? Okay. Um, okay, there's this team game there, right? This is, a team, this is a team sport. And uh, the great thing about it is that it, you need 11 players to win. And, you know, it's, for me, it's about the collective balance. It's so attractive for me for this sport. My personal opinion is I could not care less who wins Ballon d'Ors. I've got absolutely no time for it. I've got absolutely no time for individual awards in, in any team sports. And I'm a big, big fan of baseball. I'm a big fan of a lot of sports. I've got no time for MVP discussions. I understand why people enjoy it. Um, but for me, the big prize is the Champions League. And whether Ronaldo wins it or not, it shouldn't impact anybody's opinion on whether they think he's been the best player this season or not. Ultimately, if you think he has... Whether they get beat on penalties, why should that change? Ultimately, for me, the story with Ronaldo is that he's adopted a new style. He's got a manager who finally he will listen to. And, and, and Zidane, and apparently he's pretty. Um, but, but that's, the, I mean, Ronaldo as a player is evolving in front of our eyes into being a, a genuine, one of the great world number nines. And Zidane convinced him at the start of the season that he could take time off. And he listened to Zidane coming off the Euros when he was injured. And if you tell me right now that, you know, I want you, I'm going to cast a vote for Ballon d'Or and it's going to be Ronaldo, I'm like, go for it. It's fine. I mean, Ronaldo and Messi are honestly two of the greatest players, if not the two greatest players of all time. And we shouldn't be ashamed to say it. Sometimes we wait for history to go by us and then let's determine that there's, there's, there's no doubt about it. They are two of the finest players to ever play, this, play the game. I'll say this too. Ronaldo will keep playing till he... He's 40, probably. He says 40, why not? He's a machine, he's a freak of nature, and he has reinvented himself. You know, he's, he's not beating guys out wide one-on-one -on -one anymore, perhaps, but who cares? He's popping up in the box in the right position and scoring goals. So I, I give him credit. I thought he was in decline about a year ago. I thought we were seeing the, the beginning of the end, but he's still absolutely dominant, and he's wonderful to watch, and he, he's throwing his team and his country, especially, on his back. You know, pretty much every time he puts that shirt on. And then there's Messi. You know, and what can you say about Leo Messi? I mean, uh, you don't need to be a football fan to appreciate what he brings to the table every single week. Um, so, yeah, like you said, who cares? They're both wonderful. Pele was wonderful. Marad no, Maradona. Pele was wonderful. <laughs> There's other great players. Uh, but I think it's a good point. I think it took Zidane, though, to... <laughs> I think it took Zidane... Uh, a <laughs> was that a fake accent? That was awful. Just for the record, that was awful. <laughs> do you think either one will ever win? Okay, speaking of the World Cup, I'm going to keep that theme going because it is a team sport. Do you think either one will win the World Cup? Oh, Ronaldo's got no chance. No, no, Ren Portugal will never win the World Cup, but they've had their moment and it was... Uh, sorry, Dunlop. They've had their moment and they deserve their moment. And by the way they had their moment when Ronaldo wasn't on the field. So that shows you just, again, how you need your team to get you over the line. And Ronaldo, Ronaldo was coaching on the sidelines. Um, does, do, Messi has a chance. 
the thing is that he's got unfortunately you know teammates like Funes Mori who has to play in go- uh, defense and Sergio Romero in goal and you know bad players all around his team. Europa so, League winner. Um, ultimately, yeah. But did he did he make a save today? I'm not sure he did. Uh, so that's for me. Look, Argentina have got to find a way to qualify first because they're really struggling right now. But uh, I'm certainly excited. I'm certainly excited to watch San Paoli's Argentina go at it next year because they will be there. All right. Uh, question over here. I know he had his hand up earlier. All right. Um, I just want to ask about uh, Christian Eriksen, um, the guy that's ran the most all season. Uh, whether he meets your Premier League top 11 for this season. What do you think his uh, career potential is? Is he going to be the next Luka Modric? And then I want to ask about Climax Lawrence, what his, uh, <laughs> what his career potential is. Amazing. As well. All right. Climax We've Lawrence. got a podcast fan here, I think. Footy show, footy show Climax Lawrence Hall of Fame. <laughs> Climax, La- Climax Lawrence was an Indian player who was in- inducted into the Footy Show Hall of Fame because of his name. A, f- a former teammate. <laughs> A teammate of uh, Rohan Ricketts at one point. Well, TFC legend to of be Rohan fair, Ricketts. To be fair, we've all been teammates of Rohan Ricketts. <laughs> Everybody has probably been Rohan Ricketts' teammate. Um, um, Ericsson, that's for Ericsson. I mean, I, I, I think he's... Him and Gilfi Sigurdsson might be the two most underrated players in, in, in the Premier League. They're just wonderful. I hope Spurs keep all their players. I, I really do. Um, Ericsson's been just, you know... Ticking over all season long once again um, from a set piece that there's a few better. But you look at that Spurs scene, every time I open up a paper or click on a paper these days, um, you know, the rumors who's leaving, who's staying, who's leaving, who's staying. And you know, why wouldn't you want to stay in Tottenham right now? Why not stay? I mean, aside from money, I know they're, 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 their cap is a lot lower than a lot of clubs. They've got to increase that with another year of Champions League football. But is it, if there's a more exciting team, I won't say Europe. I won't say that I'm that well-versed in, in certain leagues in Europe, but certainly as far as the leagues, I watch it. A good young team. That there are a few better than Spurs with, with some world-class players, world-class players on the horizon. I'm glad you said on the horizon. Um, yeah, I mean, the job we do is absolutely magnificent. We're very blessed to do it. I love it. But sometimes, you know, 16 Marco Silva games in a row, it's not always the same. Um, but sometimes you get teams that you get to watch regularly and focus on and we've had so much fun doing Spurs games this year you know they've been absolutely breathtaking to watch uh, to watch what a manager in Pochettino can do to a team that quite frankly two or three years ago had a reputation of being really soft a soft underbelly and now they're not anywhere near that they're ruthless um, your point about Ericsson I'll be honest I thought he was really disappointing for about two months at the start of the season and I remember being on a plane with a Spurs fan at one point and we were talking he was talking to me about how do Spurs get better? And at that point, I said, I felt if you go throughout their team, and their starting 11 is very, very good, um, but their strength is not their squad. I said, I think you probably need to get a better Ericsson. Like you need to get like a, a real world-class playmaker in there who can make a difference. And now he's shown over the last four or five months that he potentially can do that. He's definitely been a lot better. Um, I like the fact that he got deeper with Pochettino in some areas and could dictate the game. His games against Chelsea when he provided the crosses for Ali's headers were magnificent and he gave him the confidence to go forward as well. Um, so, yeah, he's, he, to answer your question, no, he didn't make my 11, um, but Wanyama made it, so maybe that'll please you. Uh, but uh, he has been fantastic, and I know when you did your 11, he was almost in yours as well. Yeah, he's a fantastic player, there's no doubt about it. And the way he's developed throughout the season is, is remarkable, actually. He's really, really improved, and he's, he's in the discussion for one of the best players in that position in the Premier League but I think what's important to recognise with Spurs and, and their tremendous manager in Pochettino is the way the team plays, the way that everybody understands a role within that team, the way that everybody has such a specific quality to bring to that team and Eriksson's a fine example of that, he, he is that playmaker in my opinion if they're going to win the Premier League they probably need somebody a little bit more special in that area uh, and I've been hypercritical on them but and maybe he can develop to be that guy. And that's, that's a, such an interesting thing about Tottenham. Are they going to go up that other level or half level? Maybe, maybe a full level would be too much. But is it half level that's going to bring them the Premier League title next year? Because we've seen improvement in the squad every single year. We're seeing continuity, which is a, a really important thing in soccer. And, and they do have a wonderful coach. Pochettino is one of my favourite coaches in, in world soccer. And the way that 
he, he gets Tottenham playing out for the back, their specific style. They, they, they play two holding midfielders, which was unique at the time. A lot of teams are doing that now, and they play the fullback super high. So they're such a, a transient team. You know, KJ and I talk about this often, but we go on so much about uh, formations in football these days. Now, I just think it's, it's not even worth talking about these days because these players are so fit and formations are, are, are so malleable that it's not really that important whether it's a 4-2-3-1 or a 3-4-3 or a 3-4-2-1. It's just numbers. They, they change between defensive and offensive shapes and, and Tottenham are a, a, the, one of the best, if not the best example of that. Yeah, it's a great point, particularly with Dyer having the versatility of someone who can just step in as a three and then move up in the two and, and move around. And they've been, you know, <laughs> behind the scenes when we're watching these games, we're like requesting plays or running in the tape room and cutting plays and Hopefully, some some of you uh, don't leave the room to cook your bacon or put the tea on, and you watch us at halftime. And we, you know, we just there's so many of those moments this season where we just we just didn't have enough time to talk Tottenham half times because we had so much video we wanted to tell talk about them. And and I think that's the the, the, the biggest compliment and the fact that they went on and scored so many goals late. You know, uh, you know, I think about that late game at Swansea when they scored so many goals late in that game and won that match. For me, it was a really really big turning point for a club that's really changing their mentality on the fly although next year when they go to Wembley obviously it's going to be a lot different it's yeah I think it's bad timing the Wembley move as well obviously they have to get a new stadium at some point but uh, I think one win in 10 this year at Wembley they were very poor there um, so they might lose their home foot advantage but you know it's a cliche but I think we're seeing this team learning how to win before our very eyes late last year they had a chance to win the championship and they blew it you know that game against Chelsea last season uh, or season before last you can say now I guess um, you know, they, they, they blew up in front of our eyes. Young players couldn't handle it. Chelsea, the Wiley veterans, got at them. This year, the last two games of the year, maybe the title's done, but they scored 13 goals. They didn't turn off. They didn't switch off. So we're seeing this team's mentality improve a lot as well. And if they can just keep these players together a little bit longer, they can be something really special. A lot of love for Spurs there, right here. Thank you. Uh, Stephen, I just want to say uh, really enjoying your analysis uh, and congratulations on making the transition. I think you're doing a great job. KJ, you're okay. Um, I'll take okay every day, mates. That's fine by me. Th this is admittedly a three-beer question, but um, looking at a local success story in the Toronto Wolfpack and doing a tran the transatlantic uh, experiment I'm wondering if, you know, you can sort of put your, uh, you know, dreaming uh, machine on and think about, is there a future for transatlantic Champions League football? Is that, is that a possibility that we could look at within, the, within a, say, a decade uh, in terms of North American teams testing themselves at the highest level? Uh, I doubt it. I don't think so that that will happen in, in soccer. Uh, I could be wrong. I, I remember back a long time ago, I, I was a youth at Rangers when I was maybe 12. And when I would go into the, the youth uh, department at Rangers, they would talk about this European league that's coming. And at the time, there was a, there was a Champions League and it was the winners and this kind of thing. And, and we couldn't quite get our heads around the European league. And obviously, it's the idea is the Champions League, basically, where you have a number of teams for, for different uh, nations compete for in a European league. Uh, so... I would never say never, but I just don't think with a kind of... I guess you have the Club World Cup. Would that maybe develop into something a little bit more robust and have a, have a period in the year? But getting back to what we were talking about earlier with the, the number of games that these guys are asked to play, it's such a high level, and, and the pressure and the money involved with, with every single game they play, it's, it's, not to me, it's not so much the physical aspect of playing... For Alexis Sanchez, for example, with me, it's it's more the the mental aspect of getting prepared for 60, 65 games, 70 games a year to compete for his club, be that main guy to compete for his country. So I, I just don't see where there's a space to have a transatlantic league like that. Uh, the only thing I could think maybe the Club World Cup developing a little bit. So no, like MLS birth in even at the the entry stage no I don't think so and I, I always go back to Celtic Rangers it, it seemed like to me that that was going to be a certainty a few years back that Celtic Rangers would move into the, the, the Premier League um, but it's not going to happen it didn't happen at the time the, the one chance that I had and I don't think it's possibly going to happen now and again with a transatlantic league 
the Premier League is so strong and so global, they don't need anybody else. They don't need anything else. They just need to keep creating this marketing juggernaut, which is what the Premier League is. A fantastic league, very competitive. Every game, anybody can win, but I think we'd all agree in this panel. For me, it's not the best quality in Europe. So uh, they have what they have. It's, it's, it makes them a lot of money. There's no need to bring any other clubs from any other uh, regions of the globe in. There is the, 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 the spectre of the 39th game once again being discussed, which would be a, a Premier League game by each club each year um, in, in the States or in North America, which is growing in, I guess, a lot of, a lot of owners want that because obviously it brings in a lot of money. Do I like it? Not too much. I, I can't see a transatlantic league for the near future. Maybe one day when air travels, you know, improve dramatically in well, 100 years' time. But I, I see a European Super League before this happening, sadly. And I, I think that, frankly, is inevitable one day. To answer your question from the MLS point of view, the one area that it could get to is if in the international game, Commonwealth and CONCACAF get closer and closer together, there is discussions about a potential, you know, you know having... TFC play Brazilian teams and extending that but then again you come back to one the revenue problem is there any revenue to generate there to stop the league and the other thing is in the enormous amount of travel I mean if you think about how you're going to fly from one end of South America to one end of North America that's a massive intake it's actually better just to go over to Europe in some markets so that's always going to be a big big problem for them but it is an exciting challenge to see I think we all want to see the, the teams be challenged again against different levels. Right in here, in the middle. Uh, so Rafa Benitez is coming back up to uh, the EPL with uh, Newcastle United. Uh, one of the big things, the big questions there is, is he going to get the support from Mike Ashley to do what he needs uh, at Newcastle? What are your, your thoughts on that? It, it seems every year Mike Ashley does something stupid, doesn't it? Just one, maybe one thing. It could be like, you know, renaming his stadium, the Sport Direct. Like, no, it's not. It's St. James's Park. He actually does it every year. One yeah. thing. He yeah, does. one thing, right? Every year. Yeah. And, and, you know, Rafa... On purpose, yeah. Rafa is not one to suffer fools gladly. He'll demand commitment from the owner, and otherwise he'll walk. Simple as that. So I think it's going to be a really fascinating season, off-season for, for Newcastle, because they were a good story this year. They're, they're a very good team, but they're not going to be uh, doing too much in the Prem without significant investment. I think the team's very good, and I... And I I was having a discussion with a Newcastle fan the other day about this, and he was like, we need loads and loads of new players. I'm like, I think you definitely need a few. I personally think the gap between the top of the championship and the second half and the bottom half of the Premier League is very, very narrow. Um, if you get a decent team out of that championship, they could go and play tomorrow and they'd be okay in the Premier League. That's my personal thought. Villa fan. Well, we didn't even make it in the Premier League, so we're nowhere yeah. near the top of the, We're nowhere near the championship. I was certainly not thinking about Villa, um, but yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Um, I know Newcastle fans permanently are biting their nails when you've got when you've got that clown in charge of the club. But yeah, there's no doubt about it that Rafa thinks he's going to get investment. I watched them. I was back home for Christmas and I watched Newcastle play Nottingham Forest at Sports Direct Arena, St James's Park, and um, they were. I was actually disappointed with their season. I felt like they would have been better. I thought they would have run away with the championship, just squeezed it at the end against you know a, a side that didn't spend that much money in Brighton. Um, I think they're going to need three or four top players rather than eight or nine players. You know, I, I think it's about real quality in specific areas. Keep the organisation, keep the spirit. I think they'll have a a decent season, probably mid-table because of the sport, because of the club, because of Rafa being the quality coach that he is, but they, they definitely need some gems. Their plan, and I actually spoke to Lee Charnley, their, their chief executive, at, at some point in the last year, and, and their plan was to buy championship players, spend a lot of money on, on these guys, Richie and Gale, the likes, you know, 10 plus million uh, pounds, which is a lot of money for a championship player and, and, and considerable wages, to get them up, that's been achieved. And then their players, the, the great ones that stepped up, would obviously possibly play in the Premier League, but their players would be the mainstay of a squad in, in the Premier League, and they would add some pieces that they know that they need to, to really compete at that level. So you have to expect they're going to stick to that plan. I don't think Rafa would be there if they're not, but only time will tell with Mike Ashley because he's changed his mind on things before. It's not an easy league to get out of, though, and they've done it straight away, so that's a big achievement. 
So one more question. I know you had your hand up for a while. Just Sorry, right quick follow-up. If you were betting men, does Rafa last the season or is he out by half? Doesn't last for me. Same. He'll last, I don't know. <laughs> Why you got to be different? Because you're sports net? Yeah, precisely. He's out we're enemies. We hate you. Hi. <laughs> uh, uh, just two quick questions. So I, I wanted to uh, hear about uh, your guys' thoughts on the... 2026 Canadian, well, U.S. bid, but your thoughts on that, the thought of having, being able to go to a World Cup match in my own, own country is incredible. Uh, and then secondly, just quickly, James, um, I grew up watching Jerry Dobson. Um, he was my introduction into football and uh, just wanted to hear some of your thoughts on working with him, maybe some comments or thoughts you had on, on, uh, on what he passed on to you? Because it's kind of like a Tonight Show thing. You've like passed <laughs> on to... Yeah, sure. No, um, so I, I left the score. What year was that, Cage? Um, 14? 2014? 2013. Was it 13? It's in the Black Book somewhere, I'm sure. April, today. April 29th, 2013. There you go. Last okay. 40 show. Right. And uh, yeah, so I jumped across the sports net um, in, in a variety of roles, but including hosting the, the Fox Soccer Report. Soccer Central, very confusing title that was. You try saying it on live TV three times a, a night. Um, and, you know, I was a bit concerned, you know, would Jerry, you know, accept me? Because clearly I did the same kind of job that he did. And I was filling in for him when he was away or, or calling games somewhere. So I thought, you know, with Jerry, I didn't know the guy that well. I knew him a little bit from, from you know, the industry, from seeing him at games, etc. But I wasn't quite sure. He had every right to be a bit suspicious of me. Um, every right, trust me. But uh, no, the truth was he was, he was fantastic from, from day one, very welcoming. Um, and I got to sit actually in these guys' chairs for a couple of years as an analyst, which is not my natural position, which I'm sure you can all attest to. Um, I, I'm much better, or better, much more comfortable in the host's chair. So sitting in that position, seeing Jerry work and how he did things was a, a big learning experience for me for sure. So when he left and I assumed that position, um, it was a perhaps... Uh, more seamless than it would have been otherwise. But yeah, really good guy, so much experience. Old school guy, you know, did things the old school way, which in many ways is better, I think. Um, and yeah, just uh, obviously a, a legend of, of the industry and the sport in this country. The face of the Premier League for, for almost 20 years. Uh, two things before I get them to comment on World Cup. Yeah, Jerry Dobson, absolutely incredible. I too worked for SportsCenter at one point. I worked sideline soccer. Really? We don't talk about those dark days. Um, now it's all TSN. You've been everywhere, Andy. This is true. Wait, wait a second. Hey, hey, hey. He can't say that. I can say that. Um, but, you know, Jerry Dobson was, was doing the play-by-play -play at the time. It was myself and Craig Forrest. And Jerry was incredible. He was always the first to always also invite you to go for a beer after the game or going for dinner the night before and always giving you advice, and you did this right, and work on this, and he was always really amazing, so he's a great guy. And secondly, when you talk about how incredible it will be to go to a World Cup game in your own country, hold on to that feeling, because as somebody who has worked major events, World Cup, Olympics, Pan Am Games, there is nothing but doom and gloom before a major event. Everyone always starts to highlight the negatives about a country, or they start to highlight why it's not going to work out, or why the tournament's going to be a bust, and it's not going to succeed, and then guess what? The sport starts, and everyone starts watching, and everyone gets on board, but hold on to that feeling, because beforehand, trust me, all the reports will be doom and gloom, the stadiums aren't ready, and they're shit, and the paint isn't drying, and this isn't done well. Wait, 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 are, are, you, are, you, are you Moroccan or Canadian? <laughs> okay, just thought I'd So clarify. don't lose that feeling, trust me, don't lose that feeling. So, and then I guess the question was being able to host, right, a World Cup, home soil? I mean, I, I've been pretty consistent on it from the start. I think it's, well, it's a done deal. I mean, Morocco can just take a hike at this point. <laughs> Sorry to any Moroccans in the house. You've got no chance. Um, but the moment the bid came out, I think that the rest of the world just kind of knew that, okay, North America wins again. Um, we've got, you know... Um, South America were never going to bid. Uruguay wants it for the centennial in, in, in 2030. We know that Asia and Europe couldn't bid. So North America couldn't fail. Uh, from that point of view, I think that you have to remember that without really any direct competition, the United States, despite what their relations are internationally right now, would have walked it in a canter if they'd hosted it on their own. So the fact that we've got it here with them and with Mexico, I think is important it's important for the United States as well with their relationship within CONCACAF, Victor Montagliani, who is 
anybody who's met him is as genuinely a good guy as you see on camera and, and you see in press conferences has worked very very hard for a number of campaigns we talked about the Canadian Premier League before uh, we've got a good guy there and we've got a guy who cares genuinely to about, about doing things straight and the right way which is very important within FIFA and and so my point is is that you know if we've got 10 games uh, I understand people were disappointed at that I was understand that people wanted a quarterfinal or a semis you know, beggars can't be choosers. And ultimately, 10 games is massive for this country. The fact that we have to make sure that we get Canada in. No prelims, no you know, qualification to try and get in. It has to be mandated that they get in. Once we get approval that that is definitely happening, gun, you know, guns are blazing. Go ahead, and go ahead and enjoy it. Get your tickets. There'll be a lot of money, but get them. Um, enjoy it because it's, like, it's, it's unlike anything else. It'll be a magnificent occasion, and it'll be one that... Quite frankly, we may never see again, and you'll be telling your grandkids about for years to come. All right, everyone, thank you so much for making the first Footy Talks an absolute success. James Charman, Christian Jack, Stephen Caldwell. Thank you to Tim Bezvichenko, who is here, and, of course, Laura Armstrong and John Molinaro, who were on earlier. Thanks, guys. <laughs>